want to welcome you all that have come today. It's great to see such a crowd of people. And we trust that the Lord will be with us as we've been praying. And as you know, the, the, the meeting, we'll get it started as quickly as we can here. This meeting is for, is, is, uh, we're taking up Romans, uh, Romans chapter, chapter 4, it is. And our brother John Black, who's with us, who we're glad to have with us, we and as I say, saved by grace is the heading. So we leave the, uh, the, the Bible ring over to our brother John now. Now shall we turn to the chapter before us, chapter 4 of Romans, the fourth chapter of, of Romans, and the whole chapter we shall read together, commencing at verse 1, Romans 4, verse number 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath were off to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin." Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, 
when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offences, and was raised again for our justification. <clears throat> now I think it's only fair to give <clears throat> some introduction to the epistle Generally, uh, the epistle to the Romans, because some may be here who are new to these things entirely, and uh, being the first Bible reading, that may take a minute or two just to set things in their place. And as most will know, at least some will know, that Romans is the first epistle in the New Testament. Of the 21 epistles that we have, Romans comes first. And that is very fitting and suitable because it's a foundational letter. As we've been reminded earlier today, in fact, in the prayer meeting, all things begin with the gospel. And uh, that leads to an ongoing revelation of truth in the later epistles. But the epistle to the Romans is chiefly the epistle of the gospel of God. Many times people have asked what is the theme of the letter to the Romans. And it would be easy to suggest some other things. But, you know, I think it would be too narrow to confine it to justification or to righteousness or any of those particular themes. But rather a broader subject of the gospel of God is perhaps the best way to describe the theme of the epistle to the Romans. Very precious book it is, and I hope that we enjoy these chapters that are now before us. Now, I want to say a little just about the writer and the time. It was written about A.D. 57, as far as we can gather, about the springtime of 57 by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it while he was in Corinth, as recorded in the early part of Acts chapter 20. And just pointing out these things for the help of younger believers. And I would say that the reasons why he wrote the letter were uh, manifold. And I would say that he was first of all introducing himself. He had never been to Rome. And he was letting the Christians at Rome know a little about himself and about his movements, what he purposed to do. In fact, he clarifies his intended itinerary of the future uh, months and perhaps even years. And he speaks about the journeys that he intended to take, even as far as Spain, as we would read in chapter 15. So he's giving them a background of, of uh, his purpose, the purposes that he had before him. As well as that, he's, of course, giving a very clear exposition of his gospel. That is what he called it himself, my gospel. He was very keen that the Christians at Rome would have a full understanding of the gospel that Paul preached. And we are glad we have it as well. As well as that, in this epistle, <clears throat> he is 
of course, intending to come to Rome, and he's wanting to stimulate in the Roman believers an interest in his further movements. He's going to be intending to move further west with the gospel. And part of the reason why he's writing this letter is to gather up some uh, support and uh, prayerful and practical support and just a fellowship with the saints in Rome for his ongoing missionary enterprises in the West. And uh, another big matter that's in this letter which is always kind of behind the, the, the scene in nearly every part of the epistle to the Romans He has in mind the harmonizing of Jew and Gentile. That was one of the big things in Paul's ministry. Was he has a very deep consciousness of the gospel that's now being preached among the Gentiles. To whom he was really the apostle. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. But he himself was born and raised a Jew. And of course he's keen to keep those two sides of things together. And to show the oneness of the, the, the new uh, Christian era and the Christian body, this new community of Jews and Gentiles, uh, both reconciled in one body and both together. And that comes out even in his purposed uh, travel plans. Because you'll notice in the letter of your reading that there are two places that he chiefly wants to get to. One's Jerusalem and the other Spain. Well, when you think of Jerusalem, you're thinking about the Jewish side of things. And he's taking a gift there, practical help to the saints, the poor saints. And then he's also intending to get to Spain, and that is his interest in the Gentile side of things. So Paul is a man who's always trying to keep those two sides together. Now in this epistle, just for your own interest, in chapters 1 to 3, broadly now I'm speaking broadly, In chapters 1 to 3, Jews and Gentiles have a share in the penalty of guilt. They're all condemned, every one, equally. In the following chapters, 4 and 5, Jews and Gentiles are having a share in the provisions of grace. That is, the gospel is for each of the two sides and for every single one as we shall see in our Bible reading. So chapters 4, did I say 4 and 5? I'll take that on to chapter 8. It's really up to chapter 8 you see the provisions of grace for both Jew and Gentile. And then, very importantly, chapters 9, 10 and 11, which sometimes are unfortunately referred to as parenthetical. They really are not parenthetical. They're part of the argument of the whole book of Romans. And what we're learning there is that Jews and Gentiles have a share in the program of God. And then finally, chapters 12 to the end, chapter 16, uh, Jews and Gentiles are harmonized and brought together in the practice of godliness. And that's that's how I see that side of things in the epistle to the Romans. Chapters 1 to 3, broadly, sharing Jews and Gentiles in the, the, the penalty or problem of guilt. Chapters 4 to 8 in the provisions of grace. Chapters 9 to 11 in the program of God. Chapters 12 to 16 in the practice of godliness. Now that's maybe enough for that. I want to show as well that in a broad sense the epistle can be divided in this way. 
In the early chapters, it's condemnation. Everybody can see clearly. Chapters 1 to 3 is condemnation. And then chapters 4 and 5. We're just in the middle of that. Today, chapter 4 in this first Bible reading. It's not now condemnation, but justification. And then we move to chapters 6, 7 and 8, which will be covered uh, at least uh, two of those chapters in our Bible readings. Uh, They are taking us to the subject, of course, of sanctification. Sanctification. And then when you come to 9, 10 and 11, I call that vindication. Because the whole theme of those chapters is the vindication of God's ways in regard to the nation of Israel. If God is not righteous in his dealings with Israel, we can't trust him to be righteous in our salvation. It's very, very important to see the consistency of Paul's argument. He's righteous right through with all people, with all races, at all times. God's righteousness will always be vindicated. And then when you come to chapter 12 to chapter 15, and Brother Gideon will be introducing that section in chapter 12 on Monday, God willing, you have the subject of dedication. I call that the dedication of the believers, consecrated to God's service and showing it in their lives. And then, of course, chapter 16 is salutation. The last chapter with all his greetings and so on and conclusion. That brings me to the place of our chapter here just at this point, chapter 4. And you'll gather already that it's fitting into the section that I've called justification. But I want to point out to you that the section dealing with justification in a real sense begins at chapter 3, verse 21. Now you'll have to keep your Bible before you, if you don't mind, just to help us all, and it'll make it easier for me. If you look at verse 21 of chapter 3, you have a change completely in the tone, and introduced with this important little phrase, but now. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And he goes on to speak about the basis of it in the death of Christ. Then at verse 27, there's another little section to the end of the chapter. Then that brings us to chapter 4 and the whole chapter. And then in chapter 5, right up to verse 11, brings to a conclusion in a broader sense the subject of justification. And that's important to see. Beginning at 3 verse 21, Down to 5 verse 11, you have the subject of this righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now to divide that up, I would say this. In chapter 3 verse 21 to 26, it is the expense of justification. It's very costly because nothing less than the death and the blood of Christ has provided for us this justification. It's very important. Paul begins at the cross, and he tells us this is expensive. So there's an expensiveness about this justification. In verse 27 to the end of the chapter, he's speaking about the experience of it. That is, it's going to be by faith. And it's apart from the works of the law and so on, it's experienced by faith. He broadens all that out, of course. When you come to chapter 4, you have the examples of it. Because chapter 4 is showing us Abraham and David and us also. And what he's doing is he's showing uh, that there were various
people in the Old Testament times who experienced the very same blessing on the very same basis. That's the point. So those are the examples of justification. So first of all, the expense of it, then the experience of it, and then the examples of it. And in chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, you have the enjoyment of it because you have in those precious, very precious verses at the beginning of chapter 5, you have the, the, the glory, the boast of the believer in three different senses. And it's all joy, it's all glory, and it's all gladness. The fruits of justification and the enjoyment of it is what I have called it. Now, I want to just say this, that this matter of justification that we're talking about today, what does it mean? The question might be raised in the minds of some, what really is unfair in this important term, justification? Well, it does not mean that God makes us righteous. That's one thing we need to be happy about. We'll see that later on, how God makes us righteous. But justification is God declaring one righteous. It is not at all that we are made something that we weren't before in justification. It's simply that God brings us onto a new standing. And he clears away the charges of guilt. And he credits to us. The moment we believe on the Lord Jesus, we are reckoned righteous before God. So that there's a declaration that God makes. It is a new standing and for the making us righteous and sanctification, you'll have to wait to the later Bible readings. But what we're dealing with in chapter 4 is a declaration that God pronounces, as he did with Abraham, and as David also enjoyed, uh, sins not imputed, but rather a standing before God that nothing can challenge. Now that's, that's important. And by the way, another thing I think I should clarify, which is often confused in commentaries, and in some of the, the uh, preaching that may go on in other circles, but happily not too often amongst ourselves. First time I heard this mentioned, by the way, was in a Bible reading at Larne a lot of years ago. Maybe I said last night about 30 years ago sitting up there, but it must be almost 30. And our late brother and respected brother, Mr. Eddie Fairfield, got up in the middle of the audience hope somebody will do this today and ask and help and do all you can to supply to the Bible reading. But he got up away back and he made the point very clearly and I never forgot it. I've heard it often since, but that was the first time I heard it. That the Bible never speaks of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to the believer. Never. The Bible never says that upon trusting Christ, God reckons the righteousness of Christ to me as a believer. That is never ever taught in the New Testament. It's the righteousness of God that is reckoned to the believer. In Christ, God hath made him to be sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's a very different matter. The righteousness of Christ as he lived here on earth will never become ours. That will never be transferred to us. In fact, all our links with Christ are on resurrection side. Young believers should grasp that. All that we are in Christ is because of a risen Christ. One who has been to the cross and suffered and died, rose again, as we'll see at the end of this chapter and later chapters. And so it's important to see that righteousness is the righteousness of God in Christ that we are now enjoying. 
Now, the point of this chapter is this. Take me a wee while to get to this, but I'll not be too many minutes now. It's important to try to unfold something, at least of the, 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 the bones of the chapter. The point of the chapter is to show that the means that God is using in this new era, what we call the Christian era, the dispensation of God's grace, the gospel period, the method of God in saving souls is consistent with what he did in the Old Testament. It is not at all, please, we need to grasp this, it is not that God proposed some means of salvation in the Old Testament which failed. And then he introduced another plan to take the place of the Old Testament way. What Paul is showing clearly here is that the means of justification now is the same as it always was. Never has changed. That's what Abraham enjoyed and David. And so he's showing the consistency of Scripture right from the beginning to the present time that God saves people always on the same grounds and on the same basis. And uh, we will see step by step in this wonderful argument of Paul's how that is so and how that uh, there is a continuity. You know, whenever the Roman epistle says that the gospel of the present time, in fact, even in chapter 1, he says this gospel Verse 2 was promised afore by his promise in the Holy Scriptures. And then in chapter 3 he says it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. That does not mean, and please understand this, that does not merely say that the Old Testament prophets and books of the Old Testament uh, forecast a new way of salvation or talked about it coming ahead sometime. The point is that they spoke of the very same means in their day. That's the point. It's not something a way out in the future. They bore witness in their own times to the means of justification. And now all of that's important. I know some of you maybe think it's not important, but I hope that we'll be able to uh, tease a little bit more out of that as the, the meeting goes on. So the point of the chapter here is not some useless expansion that Paul is making on something he's already said. It's not an unnecessary chapter, but rather he feels it necessary to show how that it is, uh, he's really explaining what he has said in a more definite way. Now, all of you know that this chapter has some parallels in other portions of God's Word. I couldn't read this passage without thinking about Galatians, chapter 3, chapter 4. Uh, there's much of the same terminology used, but there's a different problem in the background. Somebody might want to mention that. It's not exactly the same problem here in Romans that he's writing. Not that he's really addressing a problem, but he's making things clear. In Galatians there was a problem. Then there's another passage that would come to your mind, and that's Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Because there we have Abraham, and we have Abraham's faith, and we have David also, and we have uh, the fact that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, so on. And then there's another passage, and that is James in chapter 2. Because in that passage we read that Abraham was justified by works. <laughs> and we'll have to work at that and see what that all means. And the consistency of the two writers in those two different passages. 
So keep all that in mind as well. Of course, Genesis will be very much before us as well. And our brethren will help us in those things. There are some important words arise in this passage. The phraseology of the passage is very significant. For instance, the idea of believing or faith is no less than 16 times in this passage, this chapter. And then you have a word that's important as well, which is the idea of counting or reckoning or imputing. It's all the same word in the Greek. And 11 times in this chapter that word is used. Imputing righteousness. Counting it unto him for righteousness and so on. Important word to to pick up on as well. And then you have the idea of justify or righteousness. Again, 11 times in the chapter. And then you have Abraham mentioned very often. You have the idea of father. Abraham is father. Uh, actually seven times in this chapter and you have grace mentioned only twice in the chapter the title of our Bible reading today is salvation or saved by grace and grace is in this chapter twice as we shall see and uh, I think I'll say no more about uh, that but I do want to come to the chapter and show you just a little thing here that's of interest to me and uh, then we'll, we'll divide it up and we'll be ready to to commence our discussion. Please look, will you, at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, I'll divide the passage into four. And I'll do it in this way. Verses 1 to 8 of this chapter. I want us to see that salvation or justification, whatever term you wish to use, It is not by conduct, or if you like, not of works. Then verses 9 to 12, not ceremony. So the first section, 1 to 8, not conduct. Verses 9 to 12, it's not ceremony, it's not circumcision. Then verses 13 to 15, I'll just break off the the section there. Some are a little bit, uh, you know, unsure about where to divide that little section. But I'll just break it down to 13 to 15. It's not commandments. Not commandments. Not the law. And then verse 16 to 25, right to the end of the chapter. It's maybe a bit awkward, but I'll just say that section just tells us it's not confined. And I mean by that it's not confined to Abraham or the Old Testament, but it's to us also. Now, I'll go over that again. Verses 1 to 8, not of works. 9 to 12, not circumcision. 13 to 15, it's not law. 16 to 25, it's not for Abraham only. Now, the reason why I divide it in that way is because of the use of the little word not. That little word not is common in this chapter, but I'm highlighting four of them. And I want you to notice that the section titles I've put are just drawn right from the text. In verse 5, but to him that worketh not. That's it. So it's not works. In verse 10, that's in the middle of our next section. In verse 10, it distinctly says, not in circumcision. 
So there you have it. You don't need any more uh, alliteration or anything. There it's just right in front of us. Not in circumcision. When you come to the next section, 13 to 15, again you have it right before you in verse 13. Not to Abraham or to a seed through law. So there you have it again. Not the law. And then when you come to 16 to 25, it's not for Abraham only, and you have it in verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone, but for us also. So you can see that I'm not imagining things. It's clear in the text itself that the four passages, the four sections of the chapter are clearly delineated, not of works, not by, not in circumcision, uh, not in commandments, that is law, and not for Abraham only. It's not confined to him. Now, what I want to do before I sit down is this. <clears throat> I want to show you that that all is drawn out of the last section of chapter 3. Now, this is interesting. In the last section of chapter 3, you have mention made of works in verse 27. Works. Now, that links with the first part of chapter 4. Then you have mention made of the law in verse 28. And you have it again in verse 31. So you not only have works, but you have law. And that links with the third section in chapter 4. And then you have in verse 30 of chapter 3, circumcision and uncircumcision. Well, that links with the second section of the chapter 4. And then you have a little word in verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also? Boy, I love that word. Is he not also the the God of the Gentiles? Now, where do we get that word also again in chapter 4? You get it in verse 24. And that links us with the last section of the chapter. But for us also. So the same word that's used in verse 29 of chapter 3 is used in verse 24 of chapter 4, but for us also. Now the whole point is that God is widening out the offer of salvation. He provides it for everybody. It's not limited to those who can work hard and be good people and good conduct. It's not limited to those who are of the Jewish nationality by circumcision. It is not going to be uh, because of law and keeping the law, commandments. And it will not be by performances of our own, but rather just as Abraham believed the God of resurrection, we too have put our trust in the God who raised Christ from the dead. And he says righteousness is available to us also. Now I trust that God will help us to see all that and help us in our discussion of the passage. I've tried to show you the progress of the chapter in some way. So much more needs to be said. And uh, it's a great passage for preaching the gospel. In a sense, in a sense it is. I think I was recollecting the first time I ever was on a gospel platform uh, telling a little of how God saved me. I do believe I read from Romans 4 in my own hall uh, back home, the old hall at Bucknah. Uh, I don't know why I remember that meeting for it maybe likely wasn't worth remembering but I remember reading Romans 4 a bit of it there at the start 
And I don't know whether I know a lot more about it even now than I did then. But uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a great passage for a, giving assurance. If there's anyone here today saved, and you're, you're maybe just wondering about a lot of things, and there's, there's a tremendous confirmation about this chapter. If we could just get a hold of the great God in whom we have trusted, uh, this passage will be a help to us. Now we'll, we'll rush on as best we can. I've taken a bit longer than usual to open the thing. I hope it hasn't been in vain. The Lord will help us. Now, Abraham is mentioned, as far as I know, in five epistles of the New Testament. He's mentioned in this epistle to the Romans in connection with the pronouncement of faith. And then he's in Galatians, and that's to do with the promises of faith. In the epistle to the Hebrews, the pilgrimage of faith is the big thing. He's a pilgrim. In the epistle of James, he's mentioned, and there it is, the proofs of faith. And in First Peter, in connection even with home life, the propriety of faith that will regulate our home life. So Abraham is a familiar figure in the New Testament epistles. Now please come in with any general thoughts about, or anything you maybe disagree with about those divisions and Suggestions already made. We'll be happy to hear all and have your help. The other chapters we'll be looking at, the amount of questions yes. um, that, that keep recurring. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how we might understand Paul's use of questions in this epistle. Well, as this first question here, as you know, Mark, what shall we say then is that's a form of question repeated. In chapter, this chapter, chapter 6, and chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. And I suppose he's, he's asking these questions because he's imagining that there will be objections raised. He's imagining the objector, amongst the Jews particularly maybe, asking questions. And uh, he's anticipating those. That's a very, very keen and insightful way to make his case uh, you may have something to add to that yourself. Not really, no. I just thought it, it helped us to appreciate something of the, the, the way in which Paul was constructing his argument. Oh, yes. not, not even so much that he's answering objections before they arise, but he's, he's bringing the reader along with him and he's anticipating the questions that will be occurring to them. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that that brings before us is that, you know, that, that this is something, um, the, the case that he makes for the Gospel and the Epistle of the Romans is, is closely reasoned. Yes. Um, it is something that is, we will discover, I suspect, demanding for our minds and for our, for our thinking. Oh, sure. And that there's a, there's a rigorousness to the approach that the Apostle yeah. takes to the subject here. Yeah, yeah. I, I see the questions in a slightly different way because sometimes when you go to a doctor's surgery, there's a ten questions and then an answer neatly laid out to each of the questions so that you get to the end of the handout and every logical question has been logically answered. I don't sense that in the Roman epistle. I, I tried to count the number of questions, and I think I gave up around about 50. And it, it, I think the, the true number may be closer to 60. I get the impression here of a man engaged in a passionate debate. Uh, there are some times in the passage here where five or six questions are almost Mm-hmm. log jammed one after another and I, m- my sense here is not so much that he's asking the questions 
in a cool, methodical, logical, rigorous fashion, meeting every objection that might be laid against him. I get the sense that these questions are symptomatic of a man that is absolutely passionate about his topic. And he's so stirred in his spirit as he thinks of the issues that are being brought out against the gospel he preaches that the questions are almost symptomatic of a man that's preaching rather than writing. In fact, I have wondered, though I don't know what proof there is of it, whether he dictated this letter, because I could see the wee man striding up and down, dictating this letter, you know, his arms waving, and a secretary sort of struggling to keep up. Well, that could be. Uh, We know that Tertius was the the manuensis of the letter, so he could have dictated. David, have you any thought about the questions? No, nothing beyond what has been said, John. No, no. Well... You helpfully pointed out the end of chapter 3 is expanded through chapter 4. I just wanted to pick up on verse 21 of chapter 3, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Would you see chapter 4 as as he's calling the witnesses of the law and the prophets? Is that how you see it? That's how I see it, Eldon. I see it as a kind of a... He's bringing a legal precedent before the thing. It's, it's a courtroom setting and all the witnesses have already been called. Man is guilty. He has proved the universal reality of guilt and now he's introducing the universal availability of salvation. And he's presenting a case history from the Old Testament which is, you know, in a way I would like, Alan, you to have had this Bible reading because you're a legal kind of a man a lot of it's a legal thing so well <laughs> so what would you say about that well i would say that he's you know some precedents are more powerful than others um, and what you do if you're trying to persuade somebody of the force of your argument is that you select the most powerful possible examples now yeah. i would have thought the most powerful possible argument to a jew and i do think there's a kind of jewish issue going on here is abraham because he yeah. after all was the man that they looked up to as the kind of progenitor of their nation. And then after you've left Abraham to one side, you might say, well, who do I go to next? Yeah. I know. What about the greatest hero that the nation ever had? David. Yeah. And lo and behold, two, the two great heroes of the nation both lend powerful support to the idea that man's not justified on the grounds of law-keeping, mm-hmm. but on the grounds of faith. Yes. The greatest patriarch and the greatest monarch are both called here. It's not the only reason why they're selected, but whenever he began with his condemnation of uh, humanity and all their guilt, he began with the worst case, which was the heathen, the pagans, in chapter 1 of Romans. When he's beginning here to bring examples in the matter of justification, he presents the best case first. Brother John, the the, the, the fact that he's bringing Abraham at this point of time uh, is crucial. Uh, as Brother Ellen had said, uh, one reason is because Abraham was a well-respected figure, yes. the forefather of the nation. But the other reason that is quite important as well is the fact that the precedence of Abraham believing in God was counted to him for righteousness. Yes. Uh, as you said yeah. just now, that it's important to realize in Romans of the continuity of how God has dealt with men. Yeah. It was not that, that, that God had changed his ways in, in, in this time. And it was That's not right. by faith, but now it has become by faith. That's but, right. but chapter 1 in the beginning is important there that says that the gospel of God, which had promised for by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures mm-hmm. concerning his son Jesus Christ. There is a continuity of yeah. the plan of God 
and dealing with yeah, men and justification by faith. Yeah. And, and Abraham being that early in precedence in the one uh, who was justified because of faith. And therefore, right early in this point, he has to bring in Abraham exactly. uh, because of that very reason. Yeah. So he's selecting Abraham as the supreme object of Jewish admiration and the ultimate example that they held to be right with God. But they had a misunderstanding, you see. That the Judaism didn't grasp the proper meaning of the Old Testament and of the history of Abraham because they believed that Abraham was justified and right with God because of works. But Paul is now showing the facts of the case. And if Paul can show the facts of the matter regarding Abraham, then there will be no more argument. The case will be closed. Well, just help us, John. Um, so is our father um, an ethnic term here relative to the Jewish nation, or is it a broader idea of the father of the faithful? What, what way do you see that? Well, that's a big question in verse 1, Alan. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, it's the word for forefathers only here in the New Testament, mm. uh, <clears throat> as pertaining to the flesh. Now the question is this, and you can maybe help or someone, just give us what you feel yourself about this. There are two alternatives. Uh, the point is, is the little expression according to the flesh pertaining to the flesh is that linked with the father or is it linked with the finding in other words is it Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh or what has Abraham found as pertaining to the flesh in other words the question is is this speaking about merely Abraham and his uh, the fact that he's the biological father and the head of that race, according to the flesh and the sense of progeny, or is it? Is there something more in it? Is there? Is there in it anything to do with the the hopelessness of the flesh to produce what's necessary to to meet the claims of God? What is the answer to that? Well, I go first. Well, I just sure. like the I prefer the way the AV has it to be honest now and mm -hmm. I think it's the natural flow of it I don't think it's so much flesh here as the evil principle I, I actually do think this is yeah. uh, Paul speaking about uh, the, the father of the nation pertaining to the flesh i.e. the flesh that gave rise yeah. to that nation but I know that there's been a great deal of ink spilt about it well, some, you see, think that there would be no need to add the words pertaining to the flesh. Forefather already includes that idea. Yeah. But whatever, what do you feel about it? You know, I, I just wonder, John, you mentioned uh, that this word's rather unusual. The yes. Forefather, I take it as our brother uh, Alan has said to be an ethnic thing, just a biological progenitor of the race. Mm -hmm. But maybe the unusual word is to hint that there might be another sense in which Abraham is father. Yes. That, that he will develop, yeah. as you pointed out later, yes. Yes, later sure. in the, in the yeah. chapter. And, and what, what's the point of the question, actually, John? And, uh, what, uh, what gives rise to the question, as I'm, I'm asking, do you think, in verse 1? Just reading yeah. it as King James has it. What shall we say that Abraham has found? Or well, that's, that's what he discovered. Uh, what, what shall we say then that Abraham has discovered? Uh, 
I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, I'm wondering, it might not be, at the end of chapter 3, as you pointed out, there's no barrier now between Jew and Gentile. Yeah. And there's no boasting. And he says, well, if there's no barrier between Jew and Gentile, if there's no boasting, he says, where does that leave our great illustrious Abraham? Mm-hmm. What's the purpose of having a nation? What was the purpose of him being a great man if these barriers have all been diminished? Yes, sure. so yes I can see that clearly. Thanks, Steve. And might that not help explain why you have what, what might seem a slightly jarring use of an ethnic term? And you can imagine this being read to mixed Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles sort of you know, rolling their eyes and thinking, yeah, Paul going on about Jewish stuff, and this has nothing to do with us. And then the chapter unfolds. They discover actually that it has everything to do with yeah. them. So by starting here, uh, he makes the impact of the yeah. argument at the end of the chapter that much stronger. Yes, that's good. Just one wee thing, John. I really enjoyed it when I found, I found out. I remember as a boy that we had at Arthur Mee's Encyclopedia. There was five volumes. And I remember encountering a chap called Archimedes in that book. And as far as I remember, he had a bath in a place called Syracuse. And he noticed that when he got into the bath, the level of the water rose up. Mm. And he leapt out, and I think the famous words are, Eureka! Yeah. Shouted it twice. I won't say what he did after that, but that, those are the words here. Yeah. It was not exactly the word, but he's found it! Eureka! I mm. found it! So that is the kind of expostulation by Paul yeah. that he's found something of rather more importance than the fact that solids displace yeah, so uh, material, I think, or something <coughs> like that. He's found out there's a spiritual principle here. Yeah. Brother John, would you, and, and David as well, would you consider, uh, Ellen, based on what you said on uh, town, would you consider the fact that um, there is perhaps the process of discovery for Abraham? In the sense that, that uh, Abraham, a father, as pertaining to the flesh, by human means, he was attempting to bring in the promise of God with his own attempt. And in yeah. chapter 15 of Genesis, yeah. you know, he says, Eliezer of Damascus. And, yeah. and then, you know, he tried with Ishmael and, and all that. There was that process of discovery until uh, eventually right. he had to come to that conclusion that everything was of God right. by means. Right. Yeah, so you're taking a, a slightly different view from... Yeah. You're, you're taking the flesh in the sense of what the flesh can produce and works right. and so uh, on. Uh, yeah, and there's that a perhaps connects to verse number yeah. two. Um, yeah. That, that's my... Yeah. So is verse 2, that first clause in verse 2, if Abraham were justified by works, would that have been a common Jewish perception that Abraham did get righteousness by his godliness and by his works? I had thought so. So the apostle denies that. He he denies that. It's a great sort of... uh, vogue at the minute among the commentators to deny that, but I mean, I don't know, I mean reading the Roman epistle I think you're left with the, the very strong, clear and profound impression that they actually believe that works justified them sure. yeah. Yeah. Would you agree with that, David? Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to get a verse here, is it chapter 26 of Genesis yeah, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. They, they, the Jews, the rabbis taught, they brought out of that that Abraham was justified. And even what is said in chapter 15, his believing God, they reckoned that was a work. Mm-hmm. That was the point. That they, they, they looked upon Abraham's believing 
as just a nice thing to do. It's kind of a way to regard God and, and show your respect for God. But Paul is setting out here to show what, faith, what Abraham's faith was. It wasn't a, merely a work at all. Like faith is not a work. That's what the passage is beginning to show. So, you know. The word faithfulness and faith should be compared. And sometimes I hear when we're going through a, another book, such as The Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, you know, faith is mentioned and you'll hear someone just say, well, this just means faithfulness. So are we able to interchange the two words, faithfulness and faith? I think you've answered and said no, but maybe you want to comment on that. No, I don't really have much to say. Uh, I think we're better to keep them separate. Sometimes they do overlap a little, I would say, but they're different, they're different words, really. Well, you know? when you're thinking of believing, you yeah. know, Abraham believed God. It's Abraham's faith yeah. in God. It's not his faithfulness to oh, God. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. what I'm trying to yes. drive at. And the rest of the chapter will make that more clear. Yeah. So if Abraham were justified by works, he hath were off to glory. That's the same word as boast in chapter mm-hmm. 3. Mm-hmm. But not before God. Now, does that mean, here's a question. Does that mean that he could have glory before men? But not before God. That's what I think it means. Is that what you take it to? Yeah. Yeah. You see, some, some uh, maybe have the view that it just means that he had were off to glory, but it wouldn't be in light of the verdict God had brought upon the thing. But is it a contrast between before men and before God? Is that the contrast in the verse? Well, I mean, it's a strange way of putting it, but the, my best explanation of it is, and it's maybe not the best of all possible explanations, is mm. that we do boast in our works to one another, don't we? We maybe clap yeah. one another on the back if we think that you know, our works merit it. But his point is that while we might glory in our works in, in between and as between men, but when you come to the divine size and look at it from the God, God standpoint, mm-hmm. we can't glory in anything. Yes. I had thought that's what it meant. Mm-hmm. So, so just to, to get that clear, John, before you go to your, your key text here, verse 2, there's this condition. If Abraham were justified by works, the Jews believed that. There's this condition. If that condition's true, there's a conclusion. If he was justified by works, the conclusion is the man has something to boast about. Yes. Then there's a contradiction. Yes. But he says, not in the estimate of God. Yes. You say, well, how do you know what God thought of it? He says, verse 3. Yes. He says, here's how we know. The scripture says, it wasn't works of Abraham believed God. And so yeah. so yes, yeah, that's, that's yeah. it. <clears throat> Brother John, there is a, there's a real little point of the tenses that might, might be interesting. Uh, Abraham justified by works past. Mm-hmm. He had whereof to glory present, but mm-hmm. not before God. Yes. Could there be a possibility that Paul was thinking uh, that Abraham now in heaven has nothing to boast in relation to his works, right? None. But he's now before God. And, and the reason is, of course, verse 3. So in the past, he was justified presently now before God, but not boasting of anything that he had done. Uh, um, but because of what follows sure. in the yeah, I can see that getting us, thank you yes the Lord Jesus when he spoke of the two went up to the temple to pray yeah. one man was posting before God mm-hmm. but the other man was justified because he had not been to post of yes. and so Abraham, while he might have had something to post of it didn't bring justification 
For what saith the scripture? <clears throat> Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now that's a direct quotation from Genesis 15 and verse number 6. And that text becomes a basis almost of a further exposition throughout this chapter. Paul is now going to take that text and expand upon it. And he quotes it. It's partly repeated in uh, verse number 9. Counted unto him for uh, reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. It's uh, in verse 22 as he closes off his sermon. His section rather. It's quoted again. Therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So it introduces to us this point. Now what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now the question here is, and I know that Alan's bursting to get saying something about this. Uh, <clears throat> that's the first time in the Bible that you read about believing. It's the first time, chapter 15 of Genesis is the first time for many terms to be used in Scripture. One of them is righteousness and counted unto him for righteousness and so on. Now the point is, whenever that verse is introduced in Genesis 15, is it introduced at that very time as a statement of what God did there and then? Or as a reflective statement of God's dealings with Abraham even prior to Genesis 15? You see the point I'm making? And the question sometimes is raised, was Abraham justified by faith in Genesis 15? Or had he already been justified by faith prior to this? But God is now pronouncing it in Genesis 15. Help us on that. I I, I personally think that the the faith that Abraham steadfastly stood upon unwaveringly in Genesis 15 was a faith that he already had. Yes. In chapter 12. Yes. Yeah. And I think he was justified from chapter 12, but the Holy Spirit declares it. Yes. We're given quite a bit of a narrative. The Lord spake unto Abraham. Abraham said this. Abraham said that. Then verse 6 comes in. A comment of the Holy Spirit. It's not part of the narrative. A comment of the Holy Then the narrative resumes in verse 7. And that comment of the Holy Spirit is this. Abraham was steadfast in faith. The faith that he already had, and it yes. was counted on him for righteousness. Yes. But that's what I think. But now, yeah, no. well, you well, said, no. you said, Alan was bursting, so we'll let him burst. No, I think he'll agree. I'm bursting with agreement. I mean, what I was worried about was, uh, as a few of the commentators all say, that he was saved in Genesis 15. The difficulty you've got is Hebrews 11, you know, by faith. Yeah, he went out. He, he left. God of glory appeared unto him. So how, how is that yeah. not of the actions of a saved man? You see, the more, sometimes you read commentaries, they, they only turn your head, you know. Some of them are helpful, but they, they, they present this idea that there's a faith, a believing, that you believe that God is a God who guides, trusting him for guidance, and that he's there and that he's good to us and so on. But saving faith is different because saving faith believes in a God who brings the supernatural to happen. And that's what Genesis 15 is about and so on. And therefore it's a different kind of faith until you be all confused. But I far, far rather lean to what we've been hearing. That it's a statement of God's justifying Abraham by a faith that he already had exercised and already had been justified with by long before Genesis 15. 
Brother John, I'd like some help. Uh, count it unto him for righteousness when they yes. believe God. Yes. What, what, could you give us some help in Phinehas who went in and did a work in the time of Balpeer <coughs> and, mm-hmm. and the uprising and he slew the, the two people that were guilty yeah. yes. and it, Psalm 106 tells us it was counted unto him for righteousness yeah. and that seemed to be an act of works. I would just like some help, please, in that case, right. referring to Abram. Thank you. Right. Well, I don't know. I didn't think anybody would bring up Phineas today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt if it's the same thing as, as we have here now, to be honest. It may have been, actually, it was no doubt an act of faith on his part. There may be a similarity. But whether it's exactly the same now I would, I would wonder I would wonder about that I would need to take a fresh look at it in Galatians 3 it was God who preached the gospel first to Abraham yeah. and he said in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed surely that is Genesis <coughs> chapter 12 yes chapter 12 yeah. Yeah. yes yeah. No doubt. but uh, Abraham believed God it was counted unto him for righteousness what does that mean is it for righteousness in the sense of as righteousness it's certainly not a reward for his faith we, we need to avoid the idea that God rewarded his faith and that because of his faith God says now I'll give you a, a prize for it that's not the point at all his faith was reckoned as righteousness There's no, we have to avoid the idea that, that faith is a work which is meritorious there's no merit in faith whatsoever but whenever a person believes God, God reckons that faith as righteousness. He reckons it, puts it to his account. David, help us. Uh, well, maybe it will help. Um, you, you very helpfully define justification as declaring someone righteous. Yes. I was just going to ask, it might help here, what exactly is righteousness in this sense that Abraham had it? We know there's the righteousness that God has, the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness that Abraham has that we also have well it's a, a righteous standing in, in, in which situation God will not impute sin we have the converse in David's case but the sins that were against us and laid to our charge are no longer held against us and God is, the thing has been completely cleared and we're actually seen in Christ and as chapter 8 will tell us there's no condemnation as he is, so are we in this world. There's, a, there's a, a righteous standing which we have now received from God. The righteousness of God by faith. Mm-hmm. Would you say, John, although it is true faith is not meritorious, and I, I 100% endorse that, <clears throat> nevertheless, when a man puts his faith in God, consistent with the divine nature, God, given his character, is a gracious and merciful and kind God. That which is within God answers to faith. You follow me? So it's yes. not a random, yeah. like, well, <clears throat> if this man trusts me, I might forgive him. And this man trusts me, well, I'll forgive him, so that there's no consistency. Is that God, consistent with his nature, he moves out to bless those that trust him. And he will do so consistently. Yes. You follow the distinction yeah. between law and debt, being, being obliged to do something oh, as yes. a matter of law-keeping. Yeah, but that's what we should that, really that aspect which God, God, consistent with his nature, yeah. will bless those that trust him. 
Yes, we, we really should be moving on, Alan, and, and, and incorporating what you've said. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt or obligation. That's very simple. You work for your wages, you, you, you deserve, you, you, you've earned your wages. It's not a gift. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Uh, I know that here Paul is maybe generalizing it, he's spreading it out a bit wider than Abraham, but I think that Abraham is still in the background. I, I'm one of those who believe that Abraham was amongst the ungodly. Amen. There's no need for us to think that ungodly is merging into the David side of things. I yeah. think everyone lacks a knowledge of God and an acceptance before God, even though they're a good man like Abraham. Before God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, he just was amongst the pagans and moon worshippers. And he needed justification just like everybody else. I don't. John, I think you might have alluded to it earlier. The two verbs in verse 3, believed and reckoned, that might carry us down the chapter. Is he now going to take up the second of those and deal with the reckoning? Yes. And then when you get to the end of the chapter, around verses 20, 22 and so on, that he's going to deal with the essence yes. of believing? Is that the way it breaks up? I think so, John. Now, one thing I do want to point out is this. We're back here to this idea of faith uh, and not being a work of merit. <clears throat> you see, sometimes people think, people from a certain school of theology will tell us that faith must be given to us by God because it's not in us and it's a, a gift from God to us because our faith if we can exercise faith that springs from ourselves, then that is meritorious. But the point is that faith is not a merit at all. And faith is not a work at all. Faith is a duty. I try to point that out in gospel preaching. Faith towards our God and in his word is the duty of all his creatures. There's nothing meritorious about it. It's the very least that God expects from his creatures. It's a duty for us to, therefore, far from being meritorious, it's the link that brings the soul back to the God who made it. Is it not the very opposite of meritorious? It's a, it's a confession of exactly. failure and need. That's the point. I mean, why would you trust him if you had any sufficiency of yourself? And, and I believe that's what say of David. Like David was an ongoing, he broke a lot of the commandments in his adultery, covetousness and murder. And he just had nothing. His case was utterly hopeless before God. And yet, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, there was no guile in his spirit. He just came as a repentant soul and trusted in the God who could wash away his sins. And there was certainly nothing David could do to merit justification. So faith doesn't make a man just and then God justifies him. God justifies an ungodly man. That's what makes it more remarkable. Am I correct in that? That's right. Yes. So then when you have yes. faith for right, counted unto him for righteousness, God sees faith and then puts righteousness on our account. Is that right? It's not that the faith and righteousness are synonymous or anything. One is a method to obtaining the other. Yes, that's okay. true. And, and another, just in connection with that, Elton, uh, God, God doesn't make a man godly and then as a result justify him. The point is that he justifies the ungodly and then he has done that, he makes him godly. That's, that's chapter 6, 7 and 8. Yeah. So justification comes before sanctification whereas many religious circles teach the opposite. Well, John, this might be useful for, for also the younger uh, uh, folks 
justification is not God declaring a man innocent. Sure. No, no. Justification no. is God declaring a guilty, yeah. free, that's right. forgiven. And, and that's the yes. next point in, in regards to David. That's right. Uh, imputeth righteousness uh, is equivalent to verse mm-hmm. 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So it includes the yeah. forgiveness of sin. Yes. John. Thanks. Then to do with justification, the matters seem to be contradictory, don't they? Just justified by grace, that's the source. Yeah. Uh, justified by blood is the foundation. Justified by faith is the link that makes it good to us. Yeah, justified right. by works is the manifestation in the life. Right. Now to take these together then on the other side, this matter of imputing righteousness, as you mentioned, it's not transferred righteousness, it's not imparted righteousness, it's a declaration, isn't it? And I would just like a wee bit of help. Is it God's righteousness in the sense of his intrinsic righteousness or in the link to Second Corinthians 5? Is it the sense of God's righteous standard, what he requires, made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made, we might become? Notice it doesn't say have there. The righteousness of God in him. Just help us in this matter then of imputing or yeah. accounting righteousness well some, some think you see it's a righteousness from God but I, I'm not sure that that just exactly decides it uh, I'm happier just to say that God looks upon that sinner who has believed his word and he can declare that sinner righteous now don't ask me to explain the forensics of it but there's something that God alone can do to the believing soul and uh, it's his way of justifying the sinner. The righteousness of God in chapter 3, is, uh, which is witnessed to by the law and the prophets, it's really just another way of describing God's way of justifying a guilty sinner. Is it <coughs> a little bit helpful, Brother John, just to mention, no it takes you outside the passage here, yes. that um, justification is not the only blessing that we get. Yes. We, we come to God with a number of problems. and how, how would you distinguish between, say, regeneration, remission, reconciliation, and justification? We get them all at the same moment. Yes. But how would you distinguish, or how should we distinguish between those things? Or would it yes. help us? Yeah. Well... I know because sometimes they're confused a little and some are seen almost within justification. You know, some see forgiveness almost as a part of justification. Uh, I know, surely. No, no, I'd keep it. In the sense that when a sinner comes to God, he's he's, he's an awful debt. And for that debt, he gets remission. He has a serious, deep-seated depravity because he's not only in debt, but he's not a good man. Mm-hmm. And for his depravity, he gets regeneration. Yes. He's standing at a distance as a sinner. And for his distance, he gets reconciliation. Yes. As a result of his guilt, he's in danger of eternal doom. Mm-hmm. And as a release from that doom and guilt, he gets justification. Yes. So that God's dealing with all these different, different. Yeah. So that a man's justified, as you have said, he's declared righteous, but he's not right. No, that's right. He's legally declared righteous, yes. 
while he himself is still an unrighteous man. That's right. That's right. It said about Laban, or the girl's, Laban's two daughters said, Our father counts us as strangers. They weren't strangers. They were his two daughters. So they personally weren't strangers. But in the father's estimate they were strangers. So that here we are trusting Christ. We're not righteous. But God reckons us, counts us as righteous through faith in Christ. Yes. Thanks for that, Dave. That's that's helpful to to just cover those different terms. What I did want to point out. Sorry, go ahead. Brother John, it's interesting that here the word ungodly is singular, but in chapter 5 it's plural. Christ died for ungodly men. Yes. But here God justifies the the ungodly man. Yeah. That brings before us that the provision, the provision is unlimited. Yeah, very good. But justification is individual. Yes, very good. Thanks for that, Warren. And I meant to point out that there's only two occurrences of ungodly in Romans, and the only reason the ungodly man can be justified is because Christ died for the ungodly. But this is the very thing that the Old Testament said that couldn't be done; that God would not justify the wicked. Mm-hmm. And he didn't allow people under law to justify those who had done wrong. He said, this is against my character. But here in the gospel, on the basis of the death of Christ, which, by the way, was the basis in the Old Testament as well. That's what chapter 3 points out. Uh, Calvary was the work that was the basis of all, whether prospective or retrospective. Uh, And so he says... The, the price and penalty of sin has been paid by the substitute. Therefore, God can do what we would think he never could do. He can justify the ungodly because Christ died for the ungodly. So on the basis of what you've been saying about justification, would it be right to say that justification is a matter of absolutes, not degrees? Exactly. It's binary. You're either justified or you're not. Exactly. Yeah. It can't increase. Whereas sanctification could Yes. Yeah, so we need to be clear that when a man is declared righteous, God does not infuse his personal righteousness no. into any individual. First of all, God's qualities are intransmissible. In respect, he's omnipotent. No other man will ever be omnipotent. In respect, he's omniscient. No other man will ever be omniscient. So these are intransmissible qualities. But as to the man standing before God, judicially, God in his wisdom and in his justice has decreed that if a man approaches him on the basis of faith, puts his faith in him, he will impute to him, he will reckon to him, that characteristic that is consistent with freedom from guilt before his throne. Mm-hmm. One of the great interests about this is not merely that God is a judge, which he is, but he's a record keeper. The two are not indivisible, often go together actually in, in, uh, in Scripture. We mustn't imagine that God is ignorant of what we do. Some people collect information just for collection's sake. In fact, there's a huge scandal going on at the minute about the collation of information. But it's kept for no particular purpose and with no particular object in view. But God not only records everything about us, but he tabulates, organizes, and uh, assesses all that he knows about us. So that when we sin, he knows all there is to know about us in connection with that sin. Likewise also, that when he records us as righteous, that's the idea of imputation, it's the idea of somebody who's keeping a record in heaven, that is a record that God maintains in connection with us, and it will never change. So so you you think you're saying, Brother Al, that there's a world of difference between 
reckoning or imputing righteousness to a man and putting righteousness in a man. Yeah, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church will be teaches about the infusion of righteousness from this passage, but I don't believe that's what it teaches uh, at you all. See, that, that, that's all a whole... Uh, Brother John was alluding to that in his opening. Uh, Brother Alan has mentioned the Roman Catholic teaching, and then Protestantism has also kept this idea of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, do you want to say any more about that, John? You know, you no, mentioned... I, I, eh? I've said all... Um, yeah, oh, and I know your time, and this will take you on. No, you see, the whole idea is that a, a man doesn't just need his, his blacks, the black material wiped out. He needs to have white. So that the blood of Christ and the death of Christ wipes out our sins. But that leaves us neutral. But the beautiful, spotless, white life of Christ makes us snow white, or whiter than snow. So his blood takes away the negative, but the righteousness of his life. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church taught for many years that there were some saints who died, and they were so holy and had so much merit that it didn't take all the merit to get they themselves in. And the excess merit was put into a bank. And from that bank of merit, the merits of these so-called saints, uh, other people could pray and get, get plus, plus points from this bank of merits. When the reformers came out from that, they found it difficult just to accept that a man is declared righteous on the basis of the death of Christ. They said he needs more than that. Mm-hmm. Not just the wiping away of his sins, but the, regu- the white righteousness of Christ in Plato. Nearly the bank of merits again re-established. Now that hymn that we sang there, I'm very reluctant to critique hymns. Good old top lady. Just have one to word be... wrong. Oh, there Just is. One word wrong. Right? My Saviour's obedience and blood no. hides all my transgressions from view. When I see Top Lady, I'll tell them that some people revised this hymn and they put on it, My Saviour's obedience to blood. To blood. Yes. Now when Top Lady wrote that, he meant My Saviour's obedience in His lovely life and His blood shedding on the cross. Mm-hmm. Both of those are needed to make me right with God. His blood takes away my sin and His lovely life. And as our brother John has pointed out, we get our acceptance before God not from a Christ who lived, but from a Christ who sits at God's right hand. It's a risen Christ, not an incarnate Christ. And and just on the the point, John, righteousness, we never read that the righteousness of God is imputed to a believer. We never read that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to a believer. As John said, eight times in this passage, it says such and such, it was reckoned, it was counted to him for righteousness full stop not counted to him for the righteousness of God not counted to him for the righteousness of Christ just counted for righteousness it's not anybody else's righteousness man trusts Christ and on the basis of Calvary as John is telling us that man is declared as having a right standing before God and that's not having Christ righteousness of God it's a right standing yes. and it's good to, the, the books are so full of it oh, hymns are so full yeah. of it commentators are drenched with it mm-hmm. 
And it amazes, and some, some assembly magazines too, not, you know, have things in them I'm not saying at all, by any means. I've seen assembly magazines. It's, and not a, not a trace of it. Not a trace of it. Yeah. In the whole of the Bible. There's not a verse, is there? No. Anyway, I mean, I, all the reformed writers say that, and I, I remember trying to, looking for a wee verse in brackets that would explain to me where it came from. I'm still looking at it. We can, I'm going to stop you. Like, there was a, a raging series of correspondence done in this country about 1860 between a man by the name of Carson, very intelligent man, a pastor man, a very, very uh, clever man, and he published it in the Cold Rain Chronicle. I see him just looking at Cold Rain people here now. In the Cold Rain Chronicle, and he lambasted the erroneous teaching of a man called C.H. McIntosh. And he said, C.H. McIntosh and his so-called associates taught that the righteousness of Christ was not imputed to the believer. And that was heresy. That was heresy. And those are very interesting exchange of correspondence. I'll let you see it if you want to see it. And Mr. McIntosh was very, very clear that it's just righteousness that's imputed. It's not God's righteousness, not Christ's righteousness, not Paul's righteousness, not Abraham. You don't impute righteousness from one person to another. Righteousness is a standing that's imputed as. I've covered that and battered it to death, John. I think we'll go on now. Really for a good preach. Oh, it's you. But there's so I, much, I, so much I, published and believed. I, I actually thought they had changed that hymn we're singing. I thought they had changed it in our book. Oh, so did I. I think in the Believer's Hymn book, maybe. Really, aye. Oh, well. Uh, anyway, we better. Move on. We better not sing it at the end of the meeting. We'll not sing it anymore. (laughs) The the, the point now, coming to verse 9, if you'll let us press on, we're 10 minutes later, 15, so we'll have to make up time. Uh, You see, and you might say then, all right, granted that faith is the way to be justified. And this is how Father Abraham received it. If he received all this by faith, and that's fair enough, then it must be only for those who are circumcised. So it must be for only Old Testament people. He's been quoting from the Old Testament and so on. So then Paul comes in and says, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? He's anticipating that problem arising in their minds. Or is it upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. But he says, How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision. I notice now the preposition is not by. It's not by circumcision. The point is it's time factor. It's a case of history here. It was it when he was in the state of circumcision that he was justified, or was it when he was still in uncircumcision? And the answer is very clear. Uh, Abraham was justified <coughs> years before he was circumcised. Years before. Some say 14 years. Some say a good bit more. It's hard to say if you have any thought about that. But certainly there were years of difference between the time. It's a, it's a, it's a case of history. So he's pointing out clearly that circumcision didn't confer righteousness to Abraham. It simply confirmed it. It was a sign uh, of circumcision and a seal, rather, of the righteousness of the faith which he already had. So it's the point of this section that there is no way that it can be argued that the blessing that we're speaking about in this chapter is in any way the preserve of the circumcision or of the Jew. That's the point. It was, it was granted, it was confirmed by God before Abraham had entered upon this covenant and that, therefore, it is open to the Gentiles. Is that the point? That is the point. Yeah. That's the crucial point. 
He's opening the door here for a blessing to Gentiles equally. That's really the answer to Galatians, isn't it? That's what the problem arose. They were adding on, were they not? Yes. Well, uh, yeah. Yes, I pointed out there was a slight difference in in Romans here. In Romans, the, the, the difficulty may be that Paul is dealing with works instead of faith. But in Galatians, the problem was it was works along with faith. It was something along with faith, whereas here it's slightly different. In the section, John, does he say two different things about circumcision? Does he first of all say that circumcision isn't necessary? And then when we get down to verse 12, does he tell us that circumcision on its own is not sufficient? Is that how you would understand the language of verse 12? Uh, your first point, Mark? But the first point is that circumcision isn't necessary, and, and you've, you've brought out that very clearly in the, yeah. in the earlier part of the section. Yeah. But verse 12, the father of the circumcision, not only to, uh, not, sorry, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps. So it's not necessary in the first part. On its own, it's not sufficient in exactly. verse 12. Yes. Well, that's clear. Thanks for that, Mark. Yeah, so verse 12, the father of circumcision. No, let's go back a bit. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision. That is, circumcision was the sign. A seal of the righteousness. That is, authenticated the fact that he was already a justified man. Notice it's not a seal of the covenant even here. No mention of the covenant. But it really was a sign of the covenant. But it's a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had. Yet being uncircumcised. And then that he might be the father of all them that believe even though they're not circumcised, that includes you and me, that righteousness might be imputed unto them or to us also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. Now notice please, there are not two groups in this verse. There's one group with two features. They are circumcised, but they're not only that, they also have faith just as their father Abraham had. And he becomes the father of such because of the spiritual link of faith. But the interesting thing to me is this. That in verse 11, he's the father of believing Gentiles. And in verse 12, he's the father of believing Jews. But why in that order? Why the Gentiles first and then the Jews second? Yes, brother Tom. Uh, the question is, in what sense is the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith? <clears throat> Let me just say, and uh, I'm happy to stand corrected if I'm wrong, it always appealed, or for a long time appealed to me, that circumcision of Abraham in Genesis 17 was saying to him, Abraham, biological mention, you can't do it. You can renounce the flesh. But by my power, it can be done. Yes. Now, I don't know whether that's correct or not, but would it have anything to do with the sense in which circumcision is a sign? Could you help on the way in which it is a sign, a sign of righteousness? I take it, what you mean, Brother Thomas, a sign or a seal of something that God alone could do, 
and that could not be produced by the flesh. That itself is all helpful. <laughs> well, anyone have any help to give on that point? I'm happy with it. Could we maybe just say a little bit, John, just so we don't miss the big, the big issues in this passage? Yeah. We've, we've kind of dealt briefly with David and the fact that Psalm 32, Psalm 51, written at a period, I would guess, long after David had, had proved his faith in God. So like Genesis 15, it's, it's when a crisis occurred in his life, but notice how he puts it, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And then he asks, does this blessedness come upon the circumcision only? Can we just say a little bit of how pleased and happy we all are that we're justified? Yes. Is, is it not... Is it not a thing in which we should rejoice? I mean, we can, in a Bible reading like this, kind of look at the, the analytics yeah. of it all. But, you know, if you lie down at bed at night and you've maybe not done all that you should have done and you maybe feel your weakness and maybe there's a confession of sin here and there, it's a blessed thing to know. It's a happy thing exactly. to know that you will not face those sins at the judgment seat. And that's why David he committed adultery, if that's the background, as I think it is to Psalm 32. He was so happy that for all these failures, God would not count that sin to My his. love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows. The peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. Yeah. Yes. Paul, Paul, Paul was also uh, quite selective of what he left out in Psalm yes. 32. He left out the part in whose spirit there is no doubt. Yes. Paul couldn't have used that to prove his point in this. You know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Have you any thought? Sorry. No, 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 all I was going to say, yes. the, fact that, um, the fact that Abraham became, was justified in the Gentile portion of his life yes. opens the door for all Gentiles, as yes. you have said. Yes. So the, the interesting thing is to be justified a Gentile doesn't have to use the Jewish gate. Yes, that's the point I was making, David. He doesn't have to go yeah. be circumcised. But Jews have to use the Gentile gate. Yeah, that's the point. That's the Even they're already circumcised, yeah. they will not be justified unless they exercise faith. You know, and, and the Gentile who never was the, circumcised. One of the most remarkable things in this chapter is that the Jew has to go through the doorway of the Gentile <laughs> instead of the other way around. We, people would assume, the Jews would assume that if they're going to get blessing, they'll have to get it our way. Paul says it's the, it's the Jews who'll get the blessing the Gentile way. Yeah. Because uh, way back behind all this, we're learning this, and this is important for us to know, that God had intentions of salvation to the whole world before he ever chose Abraham. But he chose Abraham and the Jewish nation to be an instrument through which that would be accomplished. But his intentions initially were worldwide. Do you agree with that? A Syrian ready to perish was my father. That was, that was Jacob. Yeah, I know, but that's, he's, he's tracing his lineage back through the Syrian line, back to Ur. You know. right. We talked about that before. I think we did. Yeah. Is that chapter 3, verse uh, 30? Saying that it's one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith, and the uncircumcision circumcision through faith. 
the Jewish way, the Gentile way, the Jews have to come through the same as Abraham. Yes. Yes. So we're learning here that circumcision in itself had no independent value, absolutely no value in itself, except that it was a seal of the righteousness. And it's a sign of nationality still. And God still has a people, Israel, of course. But that's a different matter. We're not talking about that here in this chapter. We're talking about the terms of salvation. Now, the mention of the worldwide intention of God and the father of Gentiles who believe opens into this further development in verse 13, which is the promise that he should be the heir of the world. And again, we're learning that it's not by law, it's not by commandments. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Uh, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of none effect. Well, for one thing, if it's all by law, that cuts out the Gentiles immediately. It means that there's only salvation for the Jews. But what he's saying is that the promise here is through faith, the righteousness of faith, and that's something open to everyone. Is Paul, is Paul saying, uh, Brother John, that if uh, they which are the law be heirs, faith is made void, is he saying that if it was through the law, then all that God had said to Abraham in Genesis 15 and all that followed would have been pointless. Pointless, yes. And all that God had promised to Abraham would have been pointless. Uh, so, so, so he says, faith is made void and promise made of none effect. Well, if you see, if you make a promise to somebody, you're going to give them something. Say, say, say you, you have a child and they're doing an exam or or exams and you say I, I go, I'm going to give you a prize if you get the exams done you'll get, you'll get a voucher you'll get some go somewhere or whatever and then after a, a week or two you, 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 you make a change in the whole thing and you say uh, you'll only get it if you pass the exams you only get it if you get a certain grade well, the child would just come back and say but sure you promised you would give me the you promised you'd give me the prize now you're, you're saying that I had to pass the you see, so it makes void the initial promise. The, the, the thing becomes useless because you're introducing a condition. And once you introduce a condition, you introduce uncertainty. Whereas whenever God gives promise and we believe it, there's no uncertainty. And that's why he says that the promise might be sure to all the seed. There's no certainty with the law. It's just condemnation. And does verse 15 point out that it's actually worse than introducing uncertainty, it's introducing the wrong sort of certainty because actually this condition would make it impossible because the law worketh wrath. The law worketh wrath for where there is no law there is no transgression. That is the characteristic of law is that it brings judgment. I mean here's another simple way to illustrate it. If you drive well and you never break the rules and you never break the speed limits and for 10-12 years you go and you never get any points in your license which is very unlikely for most people here. Uh, you never get any points. The government won't give you a reward for it. But if you break the law and you get points and you mount up 12 or more, you'll be getting the bus to the conference. You'll not be in the, in the car. But you see, the law worketh wrath. There's nothing about the law that gives any grace or credit. It's just condemnation from beginning to end. Whereas the promise is an entirely different thing. 
It's actually one of the great themes, oddly enough, of the epistle, is that the law, uh, and this is dealt with at length in chapter 7, actually just made the condition worse. Because whereas where you had no law, you could claim a degree of ignorance about what uh, requirements were laid upon you, whenever the law was revealed and you knew exactly what it was that was laid upon you, not only uh, did that make your guilt deeper and more profound, it actually exposed your helplessness. Yes, isn't it great? You know, it just comes in there. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. Here's our great word here uh, for the Bible reading. Uh, It is of faith that it might be by grace. And there's no other way. I mean, the whole world over, there's one thing men can do the whole world over, and that is they can believe God. If salvation was available only because you had money, if salvation was only because you had brains, or abilities, or opportunities, or whatever... A big lot of us would be cut out immediately. But there's something that is... I, I don't know if there's another way. There's no other way that God could have provided salvation so universally acceptable to the whole world only on the principle of faith. Isn't that right, Mark? Absolutely. Yeah. Just on, on, on Brother Alan's point, is, is what verse, the second part of verse 15, telling us uh, where no law is, there is no transgression, that without the law there might have been sense, but it, you can't yes. have a transgression unless there's a... Clear proscription. Yes. Well, there was sin, all right. Sin mm. before the law. Yeah. But mm. the point is that law made it uh, uh, into a transgression. There was a command broken, therefore it became a transgression, brought judgment. John, I've been thinking a little bit about this, and maybe you can tell me whether I've got this right or wrong. Um, why is it that God blesses on the basis of faith? There are many other characteristics that we might have that are desirable. We, we could love God, for example, and God, God appreciates love. But it, would it be correct to say that faith is that unique response that responds when God makes a promise? So when God offers a promise or offers something to us, the proper response to that is faith. If it's his person that's in view, that is to say divinity itself, the Lord Jesus, the proper response to the person is love. Because his person draws out our love. Yes, but if it's the word of God, or it's the promise in the gospel, or whatever it may be, the proper response to that is faith. Yes, is it, would, yes. that, would that be oversimplifying it? Well, uh, I know you'll not think I'm disagreeing or, or causing you know, splitting hairs, but mm. I'm never happy to say that we're blessed because of faith. Mm-hmm. We're blessed because of Calvary. Yeah. And Christ. It's through faith that we get the blessing. Yeah. But not because of it. No, absolutely. You see the difference? Yeah. Well, we, we discovered in this epistle there are multiple series of causes yeah. at work. There's grace, yeah. there is the blood of Christ, yes. there is That's faith, right. all of which sure. together. Yes. Com- but do you get my point? Is get that, point. I mean, why, why, are we, why don't we preach in, in the gospel, love God and you'll be saved? Well, I think that's just to kind of turn the thing on its head because actually what we do in the gospel is there's a promise from God and you've got to believe it. And yeah. that's why it's faith. Yes. Is that, is that right or wrong, David? No, that's fine. Good. So faith and grace go together, just as works and law go together, works and death and so on. And I love that verse, by grace are ye saved through faith. I can get that out of my mind in this verse 16. We're moving in now to, to this. By the way, there was a slight change in the chapter from justification to the inheritance. We didn't pick up on that, we'll not emphasize it, but there was a slight, slight digression there in verse 13 to airship of the world and so on. 
but we haven't time to go into that. We're back here to verse 16, and we're learning now uh, that this faith of Abraham is the faith we exercise, and he's showing the nature of it, the character of it, and uh, how that it was a faith that believed in a God who can bring life from the dead. Now let's have help on this point. Therefore it is a faith that it might by by grace. To the end the promise may be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law. That is not only Jews and so on. But to that also which is of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. That is Jews and Gentiles alike. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Brother Gideon last night referred to the change of name from Abram to Abraham. Uh, the addition of one letter which introduces the idea of God into the name as well. Could you want to say a bit more about that, Gideon, just when you're here? Well, I was just talking about the, the letter that was inserted that yeah. many times symbolizes fruitfulness. Yes. And that went well with Abraham and God's blessing to him in chapter 17. And so with that letter inserted, he was the father of fruitfulness as yes. well as to Sarah as well. Very good. Yes. Now, my question is, those little words in verse 17, before him whom he believed. Now, what is that connecting with? What is before him? Is it God, is it Abraham as a father? The father of us all? Uh, before God whom he believed. Is this what God saw? Before the face of God, he saw a man who was a father. Even before a son was ever born, God saw Abraham uh, prospectively as a father the father of us all leaving out the little parenthesis before him whom he believed even God how do we understand that before that John just a little point uh, uh, yep. before what you just made uh, verse 17 not to that only which is oh, verse 16 not to that only which is of the law but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham it would be right to say that even those under the Mosaic system, under the law, they likewise had to be justified by faith. Exactly. Yes. So, so yeah. I mean, it would be mentioned yeah. in, in a few ways, but to, yeah. to be very specific, that they, in the, that system of Moses, yes. of the law, they likewise had to be justified by faith. Exactly. Just as it was said in verse 12 of the circumcision, they must also have faith yeah. in order to be justified. Yeah. Same there in verse 16. I take it's the believing Jews, yes. It's a spiritual seed. The father of us all. Now before him, before him whom he believed. <coughs> I, know, I, I took it as you said, Brother John, I take, I take it as bringing this right back to Genesis 15. Yes. So, so as Abraham stood before the Lord that day, the Lord could see nations and generations yes. of... The very, the very day you mean that he showed him the stars and the That's so it, on. exactly. Yes. It was, yeah. So right in his very presence. Yeah. Uh, made it very real too. Yeah. And is that the idea in the expression at the, the end of the verse, calling those things which be not as though they were? God was able to speak confidently there in Genesis chapter 15 about nations, about people who at that time did not exist uh, he called them uh, as yeah. though they were. Yeah. Would so you like me to ask you a question on that, Mark? Hmm? Would you like a question on that? I'd really rather. Right. Well, here's my question. Call of those things which be not as though they were. Is that God speaking of non-existent things as though they do exist? 
Or is it God speaking non-existent things into existence? I personally think the former, mm. not the latter. So do I. Well, yeah. that's so, right then. So, so we'll move on. <laughs> I think it's God calling them as. I think so. As, yeah. So it's not exactly like Hebrews 11. 11. No, no. no. It's, yeah. it's God speaking of things although they're already there. Yeah, he's not bound by time and sense. Yes. You know, we, we only see what's in front of us. You know, and maybe with a little bit of foresight, I could predict I'll be in a plane on Tuesday morning, all being well. But beyond that, oh, don't know. But uh, God doesn't have these restrictions. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's very so he's really coming now. Like, he is, of that quotation, John, he has taken up believed. I've got a good bit about that. He's handled the word imputed. We've heard a lot about that. Who did Abraham believe? Now he's going to tell us about the kind of God that was the object of his faith. Mm-hmm. Then you get to the end of the chapter, mm-hmm. he'll say it was for righteousness. So every, the four parts mm-hmm. of the quotation are taken up piece by piece. But this little section is the God who is trustworthy. Yes, that's, that's what we want to get to in these closing ten minutes or so. So verse 18, who against hope. <clears throat> Here's Abraham in a very, very hopeless situation. Circumstances were completely contrary uh, against hope. In other words, it was contrary to anything that could reasonably be expected from a human standpoint. Uh, His own body now dead, verse 19. Sarah's womb, the deadness of Sarah's womb. And by the way, when it came to speaking in the Bible about the barrenness of a woman... It was usually that word barren that was used, but here to emphasize the desperate, desperate need of the situation, he says, the deadness of Sarah's womb. Uh, the whole thing's deadness, but we're speaking here about the God who can bring <coughs> life uh, from the dead. So, who against hope believed in hope. That is, I take it against all human hope. He had hope that was from God. Do you think, John, I mean, one of the issues we've got when we look at a chapter like this is we recollect that Abraham, when he is brought before us, was not sitting in a gospel meeting. He had not just read a gospel tract. Um, So it's a kind of different set of circumstances from that which we are acquainted to thinking about. So therefore, the inquiry must be to see what it was about the promise that he believed that has a corresponding uh, resonance with the gospel that we here preached night by night, week by week in our halls. And one of the things that is a very powerful point of connection is that Abraham believed God even though everything in his mind told him that that couldn't be right. Now when we preach the gospel, we say a man has died for your sins, he was buried, he rose again, and he's now in glory. Now the natural man says that can't be right. But a man of faith, he believes God. So even though Death was a huge issue for Abraham. The death, de- the deathness of his wife's womb. Yeah, yeah. He still thought, now, I've got a God that's bigger than that and more powerful than that, and I'm going to trust him. Yeah. So, in a sense, there is a gospel in it all. Not merely that all the families of the earth were going to be blessed, but that there was an aspect of Abraham's faith that believed God even when there were things that, naturally speaking, might have been the enemy of his faith. Yes, and, and I take it that he did consider it all. Mm-hmm. in the next verse 
I take it that, sorry Mark, go ahead. Just again on, on what Alan was saying and in relation to what we've been saying throughout the Bible reading about the importance of faith, why does God choose faith, why is that what he uses? Isn't there a very important expression in verse 20, giving glory to God? Yes, and yes. that it's impossible for us to exercise yes. faith in God without giving glory to God because yes. we're saying he's a God who can be trusted yes. and he, yes. we can take him at his word, he That's can do point. what he says he can. Yes. Robert McFeet in our meeting used to say, faith honours God. Yeah. I've never forgotten that. Yeah. That gives all the glory to God. That's the point. Yes. Mm. Sorry. The world says, according to the one of the philosophers, that faith is something that never changes even when it's faced with contrary evidence. Now that's exactly the opposite of what true faith is. That's right. Faith yeah. lays hold mm. upon the evidence, and we were given it here. He quickens the dead. He's able to call things which be not as though they were. He is truly the prophet. He is the one who's able to take the deadness of a womb. He's able to take the deadness of a man's body. And so we also lay hold in hope. Our faith is not some sort of strange thing that can't be changed when we're faced with some sort of contrary evidence. Our faith lays hold upon the evidence of what we've seen God work as before and how we will work again. Yes, but you know, just on that point, Elvin. What evidence had Abraham to go on? You know, it's all right for us looking back, you know, to history. But he had the bare word of God to believe. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I do know what you mean. You know, this was something no one else had. But men had exercised faith before Abraham, but no one had ever believed in such a supernatural yeah. thing to take place out of totally hopeless situation. But it wasn't just a word that came out of space. He must have understood something of the character of the one who had spoken oh, the yes. word. Mm -hmm. yeah. The God of glory appeared to our Father Abraham. So. Thanks. Yeah. Mr. Chapter 4 mentions the age of Abraham. So is it in particular Genesis 17? And if that be the case, we read that God appeared to Abraham as the Almighty God. Yes. And from that point onwards, Abraham was no longer looking at his body or the weakness, but he was looking at the Almighty yes. who was able to do all that he had promised. And in that way, he was given, he couldn't have explained it, but yeah. he was given glory to God. God says it, it's going to happen. Genesis and the other 17. question, going back a bit, Abraham wasn't compelled to believe. He had the responsibility of accepting it or refusing it. Yes. Thanks, Tom. So not weak in faith when it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham believed God and what he said. Or Abraham believed God. What I'm saying is the emphasis on is, is solely on the person of God himself. The character of God. And the promises came second. And Abraham accepted those promises wholeheartedly because of where his faith was centered. So when he says, take your son Isaac, there's no question. His faith is first and foremost in God himself. And whenever he speaks, he follows. It's a little juxtaposition. Yes. Thanks for that, brother. It's often pointed out that Abraham believed God about something that was going to happen. Whereas we believe God about something that's already happened. So in a certain sense, Abraham's faith is exemplary mm -hmm. in that he was... He was believing God about... We, we have even more reason to believe God. Mm -hmm. uh, more leverage to believe. John, the, the Lord Jesus said, 
Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He sought and was glad. Is there any link in the Old Testament where that actually happened? Yes. A particular occasion when Abraham saw more than an altar, for instance, with Isaac. He saw more. He believed and he accepted that what was going to happen was the death of Christ. I think so. Yes. Brother John, there were times when Abraham had doubted as well. Yes. So what we're looking at here is not faith in that practical sense, but definitive faith. Mm -hmm. Am I right to say that? I mean, you go to chapter 17, he laughed. He questioned. Well, yes. But here, Paul is saying he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Abraham laughed in surprise. Sarah laughed in skepticism. Ishmael laughed in scorn. And the parents laughed in satisfaction. They called his name Isaac. That's a good, good ministry meeting, that, John. <laughs> I wasn't at it, yeah. but it sounds good. Could, could I ask uh, David, <laughs> what do you feel about leaving out the negative in verse 19? He considered not his own body, neither. I, I, I likely would lean to it should be left out, John, but at the same time, it's interesting that it makes very little difference. No, I, I know, yeah. sure. I'm inclined to think that verse 19 is yours. Being not weak in faith, he considered yes. his own body. He looked at the hard facts. And when they were all pointing yes. in a negative direction, having considered them well, he turned on those facts and he put his trust in the God who was over all. Yeah. In other words, it's a bit like what Elton was saying to us there. It wasn't a reckless thing. It wasn't a, 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 a thoughtless leap in the dark. He considered everything. And still, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Is that strong faith, or is it a strong Abraham, or both? Maybe you could help us, John. You know, we get, uh, you know, uh, maybe a reference to the quality of faith. You know, one verse, he's weak in faith. In verse 19, and then when you come to verse 20, he's strong in faith. Now, I would have thought we either have faith or haven't. Maybe you can make some comment about that. Well, the revisers say, and being not, without being weakened in faith, he considered his own body now dead. Verse 20, he waxed strong through faith in the promise of God. So I, I, I maybe lean towards the thought that it was himself. Uh, was weakened or strengthened you know uh, not so happy about strong faith especially initial faith faith can grow and strengthen of course but uh, perhaps here though this, the, the very circumstances made his faith develop so there may be a bit of both in it if anybody can help us in that we'll get to the last two verses then I mean certainly it is true isn't it John if you look at the record of the life of Abraham there were failures there yeah. Occasions when he, you know, he really did not move in faith. But uh, the great encouragement is that notwithstanding all those failures, at critical points in his life, when God spoke to him, he believed. Yes. And that was where the blessing came in. It's the mustard seed principle. You know, yeah. It's not so much the quantity of your faith, it's the fact of your faith that uh, is the basis of blessing. Yeah. Just on that, John, there's been quite a, a bit of reference in the chapter of believing God and so on and so forth 
is it slightly different although parallel verse 24 mm-hmm. it'll be imputed to us if we believe on mm-hmm. it doesn't say if we believe God who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead which is, would be true enough but if we believe on him so Abraham believed God but here we have believing on is there any slight difference to be seen or are the complementary expressions yes I see where your point He's, he's, he's focusing our attention on God to keep the parallelism with Abraham. Ah, but the, as you say, the, the, the preposition there, believing on him, is that, is that because Abraham was dealing directly with God? And he, 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 even in, in, in the Genesis 15 passage in the Hebrew text says Abraham believed in the Lord. Aye, that's right. Whereas the Septuagint has believed God. So we do both. In the right. So faith is, what I'm, all I'm saying is faith has an element of assent. God says it, we believe it. Yes. We assent, we believe God if he says it. But as well as having an element of assent, it is an element of resting. Yes. We also rest on the Lord. And an element of trust as well as an element of assent. Yes, yes. Brother Joan, just yeah. quickly, would would there been a, a time limit in when God spoke to Abraham and he believed all this? It said he considered his own body now dead and all. Did he delete, did he believe God immediately, or did he consider it over a period of time? You know the way we preach well. the gospel so many weeks to people. And they're slow to believe. I just want some help on that. Maybe it's not well, easy to we've answer. already tried to, to say, Gardner, that that statement in Genesis 15 is a statement of Abraham's general attitude and trust in God. It's put in there by the Holy Spirit. It's a commentary upon the man. It doesn't mean he didn't waver. And it doesn't mean he... Well, he, he didn't waver in the sense we have, but he, he, he didn't always move ahead in the way that he should have for instance the introduction of Hagar at the behest of Sarah and the birth of Ishmael and so on trying to promote the, the program of God in his own that's, that's all in the background of Genesis 2 we know that but at the same time the character of the man was that he believed in the Lord believed God Brother John is there a parallel there Raise up Jesus a lot from the dead uh, with the deadness that is mentioned in 19 as well. Yes. Uh, as well as uh, who quickened the dead in verse 17. What Paul probably is saying is if you could believe that God could make something a life out of deadness yes. in the womb of Sarah and the deadness of Abraham, yes. likewise here, there is something miraculous. That's the point. There's a supernatural element here. And it's involved in the gospel and our salvation. Now my question as we finish is this. Who was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. So that the purpose of his being delivered over was our trespasses. He was delivered for our offences. And was raised again for, it's the same preposition, for our offences, for our justification. Are we happy to take them? Both in that equal sense, in both cases, he was delivered because of our offences and was raised again because of our justification.
So that take, has been a point of controversy. Yeah, you know. I know. I can never quite understood why people get so worked up about this. I mean, is it, is it not correct to say that you just take this as collectively true? I mean, you cannot say, I don't think, that... Um, I take it the delivery up is the delivery up to, by God, the Father of the Son, to, to the cross. Calvary. It's not yes. so much the betrayal in the garden or anything like that. No. And then you aggregate that with the next truth, and he was raised again for our justification. So, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm just oversimplifying. I take it you take both truths together. His delivery up to the, the death of the cross, his resurrection on the third day, together. Mm-hmm. One was prospectively because of our offences and anticipatively with a view to our justification by God. I, I'm not sure that you can just say that his delivery up was just solely to do with our offences and his resurrection was solely to do with our justification. I think the two must be read together. Well, my understanding of it is, it's not saying that his resurrection justifies us. Yeah. No, no. We're justified on the basis of his shed blood. Yeah. But his resurrection testifies to the divine acceptance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of the penalty paid. And yeah. therefore, God has accepted a work done that justifies the believing sinner. Yeah. I believe that. You know, some have very greatly opposed that. Mr. Darby has a, a lengthy article in the Bible Treasury that I saw there lately. Yeah. Wouldn't have because of at all, because he thought it introduced the idea of everybody being justified by his resurrection. Yeah. But I think that was maybe yeah. pushing it beyond what was needful. But some, sometimes you've got to stand back from a verse. Sometimes yeah. you take the microscope to it. Sometimes you take the telescope to it. And I think we should take the telescope. Yes. Right. Well, time's well over. One thing is sure, resurrection is a vital part of our gospel preaching. And we should keep it before sinners as well. And the fact that <coughs> satisfied with the work of his son. Well, thank you for your help. We'll close in prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to thee for thy precious word this afternoon. We bless thee for the fullness of Holy Scripture and the consistency of Old Testament and New and for the wonderful grace that provides salvation to every believing sinner wherever they may be found. And here we are today, a large number of sinners saved by grace. And we give thee thanks for ever allowing us to hear about the the Saviour and of Calvary and the work that has paid such a great price. And we thank thee for salvation. We would ask thee to bless thy word. Remember all who are here, and especially perhaps younger believers, that they may get a firm foundation beneath their feet for Christian life and to be steadied and stabilized for the pathway ahead with the trials and testings that may come their way. We thank thee that the teaching of thy word is a a great stabilizing effect and is a help to us as the journey of life goes on. So we give thanks for the scriptures and pray for further help we pray that thy blessing might attend the remaining meetings of the day we give thanks for the good day we thank thee for health and strength we thank thee for food to eat for every provision made for us thou art a bountiful God and we acknowledge all thy goodness to us in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ Amen Joy of the justified Joy of the free, I'm washed in that crimson tide, open for me. Christ.
my Redeemer, rejoicing I stand and point to the place. Amen.